Last time on A Killing on the Cape. For Cape Cod, this was the trial of the century. There had never been anything like this in recent memory. This case has to do with a horrendous crime as defined by our laws. The statement is not worth the paper it's written on. I went into closing argument believing I had at the very least a case of reasonable doubt. We, the jury, unanimously return the following verdict. Guilty of first degree, guilty of murder in the first degree, an extreme atrocity or cruelty, and also felony murder. Three life terms. Holy moly, you know? Does it get any worse? I didn't think racism still existed this way. I just didn't know people still behaved and felt that way. I truly didn't. From ABC Radio in 2020, I'm Mark Remillard, and this is A Killing on the Cape. It's now been more than 10 years since Chris's conviction, and in that time, he's been at three different prisons. Currently, he's in a medium security prison called Old Colony, which is about a 50-minute drive south of Boston. Our investigation of this story looked to examine the evidence against Chris, and to do this, we wanted to speak directly to him. He's never done a broadcast interview before and didn't testify at trial, and it's confounding, right? All the different versions of what happened and when whether he was there on Thursday or Friday night, whether he was alone, whether he remembers anything at all. All the more reason we wanted to get it straight from Chris himself. But doing that would be a much more difficult process than we expected. Yeah, just uh, tell me, who are you and where are we headed right now? Uh, My name is Leslie McCowan, and I'm going to the Old Colony Correctional Center to visit my husband, Christopher McCowan. This is Leslie McCowan, Christopher McCowan's wife. And when did you first meet Chris McCowan? Um, met Chris around sometime in the late 90s, I think. I, he was a friend of my daughter's. Every week, Leslie makes a drive to see Chris from her home in West Dennis. That's on the Lower Cape, about an hour one way to Old yeah. Colony. Very sweet guy, very quiet, very polite. We talk about our families, talk about... I guess we talk a lot about my job and stuff, and um, we play cards, play Scrabble, eat, take pictures. Leslie says she didn't know Chris very well before his arrest and conviction, but it was afterward that she became close with him. Well, Chris used to hang out with my daughters and their crew. Uh, He was at my house a few times, always very quiet, very polite, and... um, I was taking classes at the community college when I heard on the radio that he was arrested for the murder of Krista Worthington. Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. I actually thought that I was, I said to myself, oh, he'll be out of there in no time. There's no way in hell he killed anybody. How do you develop a relationship with somebody who's in prison? Yes. Well, actually, you can get pretty intimate in letters, really. More so sometimes than uh, talking in person. Very intimate letters. Leslie says those letters turned into phone calls, which turned into visits, and the two wound up getting married on May 1st, 2014. The ceremony was kind of, was very sweet. We had a female minister, and she said the vows. And as for what it's like being married to someone in prison? Well, it's 
different then. I, it's different, I guess. Um, you know, I just feel bad for him. <laughs> he has to go through every day. And uh, he's in there and he shouldn't be. And, you know, he handles it very well. When you love someone, you love someone. And you take them as they are and they take you as you are. Getting to Old Colony to see Chris is only part of the journey, though. Leslie says the process getting into the prison to see him is also no easy task. Well, the worst part is the waiting. Once you get there, you know, you pick a number, sit and wait. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so, but if you get there, like right when the visits are starting, you can pretty much go right through. She says she's even started buying certain types of clothes and, that would make the process faster. Let's see, no hoods, no strings, no zippers, and they it's like seasonal. I had to leave once because I had winter boots on and it had already turned into spring. So one time I had to leave because I had a zipper. But they do now they tell you there's a Walmart up the road. <laughs> Go buy the proper clothes. Leslie is just one of a number of people who think that Chris was wrongfully convicted. She not only believes Chris didn't get a fair trial, but that he's innocent. And this is our exit. Yep, exit five. I do think one day Chris will get out of there. Can't say I have a whole lot of faith in the system or even sometimes the people here. I just know he did not kill Krista Worthington. That's all I know. Uh, do you ever get anxious when you get close? No, but sometimes the magnitude of what they've done to him really hits me when I see this prison. It's really a travesty of justice. And he needs his life back. But Chris is currently in prison for life without parole. The chance that he might get out and live with his wife, if it exists, is remote. His first appeal was denied. We talked about it in part last time. Chris's first appeal argued several reasons as to why his conviction should be overturned, including that it was a mistake for the trial judge not to grant his defense's request to move the trial over media attention, that a member of the grand jury which indicted Chris knew Krista, her daughter, and Tony Jacket and that it was improper for one of the jurors to be removed during deliberations. We mentioned this briefly in the last episode as well, but it was a big deal at the time that it happened. The juror's name was Rachel Huffman. She was 22 at the time, and as it turned out, had a black boyfriend. You know, the removal of Rachel Huffman from the jury was disturbing. Chris's former defense attorney, Bob George. Rachel Huffman, uh, at the time, was seen as a pro-defense juror. It was also it was also revealed at that time that Rachel Huffman was married to, you know, or was involved with an African-American boyfriend, which came out in jury deliberations. During the weekend after deliberations began, mid-November 2006, Rachel's boyfriend had been arrested in a drug-related shooting. Several jurors would testify the following Monday during a closed session that they had learned of the shooting on the news or by word of mouth from other jurors. Nevertheless, Judge Nickerson decided that they remained impartial and should continue deliberations. But it was the next day 
that everything changed. The record in this case would show that Rachel Huffman was thrown off the jury because she had phone contact with her boyfriend. It was on Tuesday, November 14th, the seventh day of deliberations, when Rachel would be called in and told that the court had heard an audio tape of phone calls she had with her boyfriend. Beth Karras is an attorney and former Court TV correspondent. They had a conversation that was recorded, um, and they threw her off the jury because she said a few things about the case. I mean, it wasn't anything major, she said, but it was technically she said something about the case. Anyway, they found that she couldn't, you know, be trusted and... I guess it couldn't be fair anymore, and, and she was bounced. At the time, the jury had indicated that they were deadlocked after a few days. We didn't know the breakdown, and it was assumed that Rachel Huffman was somebody holding out for acquittal. As it turns out, she was on the fence. She, she, she wasn't sure if McQuarrie was guilty. There were two others who were holding out for acquittal, not Rachel Huffman. But one thing Rachel was sure of, her concerns in the deliberation room, which were included in Chris's first appeal— Rachel was one of the three jurors who signed affidavits following Chris's trial, alleging incidences of racial bias and bias against Chris during deliberations. The appeal would make its way up to Massachusetts' highest court, which would hand down its ruling in December of 2010, more than three years after Chris's guilty verdict. It took, I don't know, five, six months for them to hand down the opinion. Peter Manzo, author of Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, Cape Cod, and The Trial of Chris McCowan. He served as a consultant on this story and says the chief justice of the Supreme Judicial Court wrote a concurring opinion. The head of the SJC, Supreme Judicial Court, is a black man, middle-aged black man. He wrote an opinion saying, while I go along with my fellow judges, I believe there are issues of racism in this case that should have been explored. And their opinion was, no, there will not be a reversal. As we've mentioned, Chris did not testify during his trial, so we've never really heard directly from Chris what his side of the story is. His former attorney, Bob George, tells us that having Chris testify was something that both he and Chris agreed was too risky. Christopher McCowan wouldn't have been capable of facing cross-examination because of his mental condition, you know, because of his emotional condition. He was a borderline, uh, he was borderline mentally retarded based on all of the psychological testing I had done. How was he going to, you know, there was no set of circumstances under which he could face a lengthy cross-examination in which he wouldn't become confused and uh, hurt his case. Earlier this year, we reached out to Old Colony Prison, requesting an on-camera interview with Chris, but they rejected our request. We even hired a Boston media lawyer, John Albano, who appealed to the commissioner of the Department of Corrections, but we were denied again. Ultimately, the response from the Department of Corrections was that um, security concerns and the fact that Mr. McCowan had pending litigation challenging Um, his conviction uh, justified uh, denying the request for an interview. The Department of Corrections didn't provide any explanation as to what the security concern was or why Chris's pending legal challenge was an issue. For a correctional uh, officer to um, make a decision based on that concern is, um, I would say, different. And Chris's new attorney, Gary Pelletier, who's working on Chris's new motion for a new trial, 
says he thinks pending litigation is an odd reason for denying an interview. Because I wasn't realizing the Department of Corrections was his new attorney. I'm his attorney. I think I get to make the decision as to whether Chris speaks or at least advise him as to whether he should speak. So after being denied an in-person interview with Chris, we then decided we'd try to get him on the phone. It took several months, but finally, on a hot and humid day in August, we got our chance. I called up our producer, Karen Schiffman, once we got word, and then it was off to Massachusetts. Hey, Karen. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, you got a second? Yes, I do. All right. So, uh, good news, we have Chris? We do. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. In a Victorian-style clubhouse on an August afternoon in New Bedford, Massachusetts, we finally had a phone conversation with Chris. I was joined by Sunny Hostin, who's a former federal prosecutor and ABC's senior legal analyst. She's interviewed and questioned many people like Chris in the past and has followed the case since Chris's trial. She says seeing Chris cry when his verdict came down has always stood out to her, and she's never forgotten that moment. Here is our conversation with Chris. This is a Global link prepaid call from Christopher McCall. An inmate at a Massachusetts correctional institution, the Old Colony Correctional Center. Hi, hi, Chris. Hello. My name is Sunny Hostin. You don't know me, but I've been following this case for years, and it was since November in 2006 when the verdict came down. And I looked at you, and you shook your head, and you started crying. You shook your head no, and you started crying. And I, I've never seen that kind of reaction. Can you... Do you remember that day? Uh, yeah. I try not to even think about it, but yes, I do remember that day. Were you just shocked? Is that why why you reacted that way? Um, more yeah, yeah, you could say that because I didn't even expect it to go that way, uh, you know. But um, when uh, once we got the verdict and everything and. And everybody said guilty. It was just, you know, I don't know. It was just more of a surprise. There's a lot of things that um, that uh, that went wrong with the whole trial in a way. So, but I did figure that I will be going home, but not spending a whole life in prison. Let's let's go so. back to how this all started, okay? Um, and and your relationship with Krista Worthington. Do you remember when you saw her for the first time? The first time that me and Krista talked, we, it was like 2002, around 2002. What did you talk about? You know, it was, oh, 
you know, just stuff in general, you know, um, how my day was, how her day was, how old her daughter was, and everything like that. But the time that we really sat there and talked was when she asked me to come in the house and um, to look at a Christmas tree, because she asked me about a Christmas tree. Were you attracted to her? Did you like her? I mean, she had a she she had something with her. I mean, it 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 did draw me to her, but it wasn't like that. I was trying to sit there and pick you know pick her up or anything. It was just one of those mutual things. What about um, now? We we talked about you going into her home to look at a Christmas tree. Can you tell me about that? Right. Yeah, because um, the day that the, the day was Thursday, and she she asked me to come inside the house and then look at a Christmas tree, and she asked me about if I could put it in the back of my truck or whatever, and I told her I would have to talk to my boss, and so that's when I went outside and called my boss up on the radio and asked him if I could take the tree. He told me not if it wasn't too big, I could take it. So I went back in the house and told her everything that was said. And did you take the tree out? Not that day. Not that time. Why not? No. Because, you know, she still had um, decorations on it and everything. Okay. And then what what happened when you explained to her, you know, what was going to happen with the tree and that you could take it? What happened next? After that conversation and everything, um, you know, right after that conversation, I'm still looking at the tree trying to, determine the size of the tree and stuff, but then, you know, standing there that close enough profanity with her, one thing just led to another. What do you mean one thing led to another? It's just like, it was just a mutual, um, mutual thing between two people, I guess, and we started kissing, and we winded up, ended up having, having sex. What, uh, where were you when you started kissing? We was in the living room. Once you started kissing, and I know you say that you had sex with her, where did that take place? In the living room? That took, that took place in the living room. Where at in the right living there, room? Right there on the floor, right there in the living room. In front of the Christmas tree? Or somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Right there in front of the Christmas tree. On the floor or on furniture? Oh, on the floor. Huh. Well, where was where was her um, daughter at this time? Her daughter wasn't even home at the time. Her daughter, I guess, her daughter was with her grandparents or somewhere. She wasn't home. Oh, so her her daughter wasn't there at all. all right. Oh, okay. So, how many times were you intimate with Krista? Just one time. Just one time. Just one time. Hey, hey, Chris, um, this is Mark. I'm a reporter with ABC. Um, so you say for sure, unequivocally, you weren't at Krista's on Friday. So let me ask you this. You, you had sex with her on a Thursday and then she ends up dead on a Friday. Can you understand why people think that that's odd? That you must have well, killed her? It's a lot of speculation on on the exact timeline and when she was killed. But I do understand where a lot of people think that I might have had something to do with that. 
but I didn't have nothing to do with it. Now, I, I remember with, uh, I, I've read or I've heard that with Krista, you didn't really talk to many people about this relationship that you that you had. Why is that? Because she asked me not to say anything because she didn't want people to know about her personal business. And, and I'm the same way. I don't want people in my personal business as well. So, you know, I just respected her wishes by not saying anything. Now, when you were questioned by the police, you told them you didn't know her, you had never spoken to her, and that your only contact with her was just waving. Why did you lie to the police? No, I didn't lie to the police. I told them that, you know, I knew of her and that we talked about her past and everything, but I didn't tell them about we had sex or anything because I was still on the assumption that I was protecting her and about her wishes and stuff. So, but other than that, I... You have 60 seconds remaining. Let me ask you, though, you, you voluntarily gave your DNA to the police, right? Right. Didn't you realize that perhaps they would find out that you had had sex with her? Look, I didn't have nothing to hide. If they would have asked me if I had any kind of intercourse with her, I would have told them, yeah. But they didn't. They never asked me that question. And when they asked me about my DNA, they never took it. They said they would come to me. You have 30 seconds remaining. They would come to us sometime later and get the DNA from me. I have to call y'all back. Okay, okay. Well, what about the very next day? So you didn't have to go, you, you didn't have to drive your route that next day, that Friday? All right, no. And what did you do Friday night? Friday night, I went to the juice bar and I met up with a couple of friends of mine. And then... Um, Who did you meet up with? Uh, I met up with Jeremy Frazier and a couple of uh, other friends. So you you met at this juice bar? Right. We met at the juice bar. And so from that, after the juice bar, we went to an after-hours party where Jeremy got into a fight and everybody left the house. Okay. What kind of fight was it? Was it a physical fight or just an argument? No, it was a physical fight. A physical fight? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He got into a fight with a kid, but with a guy that was dead. You know, the next thing I know, they said that the police was coming, so everybody left. So party over. Party over. <laughs> and what, what did you do after that? I went straight home. Okay. Now, let's fast forward to the third time you met with police. Now, this third time, you were interviewed by, for six hours. And when, I get- when you were arrested... And they say that you said, no, you didn't want the the uh, discussion recorded. Why did you make that decision? I was already I was already under the influence of Percocets. I was under the influence of cocaine and I was already under the influence of marijuana. So uh, do you remember meeting with the police that day for six hours? Briefly, yes and no, because... uh, at the time when they came to my house to arrest me, it was more of a surprise to me mm. because I was sitting there just, I was sitting there smoking a joint and playing video games. So, but when I got down there to the police station and they asked me a bunch of questions, I'm like, 
okay, whatever, you know. I don't, I don't really know what's going on, but go ahead and ask, whatever. Did when you... They about the, when they asked about the videotape and, and the tape recording, I was just, I was, I was still surprised, and I said, no, I don't want to be videotaped or tape recorded because I didn't really understand what was going on, not being intoxicated like that. Well, do you ever remember going to uh, Krista's house with Jeremy? No. Do you remember Jeremy uh, going to Krista's house? No. As far as I know, he's never been down there with me or anybody or by himself. Did you ever speak to Jeremy about Krista? No. Now, can you explain the 28-page confession? I really don't understand how that 28-page confession came into play. Because, like I said, when, when they were sitting there interrogating me for those six and a half hours or whatever, or however long it was, I never sat there and divulged any information besides the same stuff we was going over. So do you remember telling the police that you did have sex with Krista? The only time I told the police that I had sex with Krista is when they showed me the DNA report. When they showed me the DNA report, I told them that I did have sex with Krista. Now, you, you've you told your defense that the police manipulated you. What do you mean by that? Because they kept on switching everything up. You know, if I told them one thing, then they would sit here and say something totally different. And then, you know... It was just all, all crazy. It was crazy that night because I was, I was so intoxicated off of all of them drugs that I really didn't know what the hell was going on. What about when uh, you were in court hearing Mason testify? Were you surprised by what he was saying? <laughs> what Mason and, and Lieutenant Burke was saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was more shocked on that because I don't even remember telling them half the things he was saying. But when you, in the report from Trooper Mason, you said that you were drinking a lot that night. Uh, is it possible that you just don't remember what happened? On Friday night? Yeah, on Friday night after the juice bar. No, after, after the juice bar, at the juice bar, and after the after the juice bar, yes, I was drinking. I was drinking a lot. But if anybody knows the if anybody knows about you know driving through Wellfleet and going down there towards Truro, especially at one one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, or whatever, everybody knows that the you know that the police officers are sitting out there waiting to pull people over for drunk driving or whatever and by me being that intoxicated I would not take that chance of driving all the way down there to Troy. so you wouldn't have gone all the way there if you'd been drinking right I would never drive all the way down there so in that report from Mason when he says that that when they say that you told them that Jeremy was involved you don't remember saying that at all I don't remember saying anything like that so do you think Jeremy was involved? I, once again, I really couldn't say yes or no. I don't know. But you also named Jeremy as Krista's killer. Why that's did you- what they said that I. That's what they said that I did. I didn't do that. So you don't remember telling the police that Jeremy stabbed Krista? 
No. What do you think happened to Krista? That's a good question. I wish I knew. All I know is that I did not kill her. I'm sitting in here for something that I didn't do. That's the part that really upsets me because if whoever killed Krista is still out there walking around. Is there something, Chris, is there something you would have done differently if you could go back? That would have helped you that, that would have helped you avoid where you are now? Yeah, not having sex with Crystal. Honestly, if I would have never, you know, had sex with Crystal or never went inside that house and looked at that looking at that Christmas tree, none of this would be going on right now. We wouldn't even be discussing this. You know, I'd still be out there doing whatever. But, you know, I mean I just I, this is this is a nightmare for me. This is just one of the nightmares that I'm trying to wake up from because, you know, I mean, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry that Krista is, is, you know, is dead and everything, and, I'm, and I feel bad about that. But you know, it's just I was taken away from, you know, I was taken away from my kids. I was taken away from, you know, my family and everything too. You know, and. It's really, it really does bother me, so. So, there it is. Chris's version of events. He says he was at Krista's house on Thursday and had consensual sex with her then, that he never went to Krista's on Friday, and most notably, he doesn't accuse Jeremy Frazier of killing Krista, as he did in his statement to police on the night of his arrest. But while he no longer points the finger at Jeremy, Chris's latest effort to get a new trial largely focuses on him. Chris's new attorney is Gary Pelletier. We met him in episode one outside of Barnstable Superior Court. It was early August 2017. Well, I worked with uh, his prior attorney, Bob George, and we did the appeal together in 2010. And then I took over and I've been taking the full-time role of the, uh, on the motion for a new trial. Gary is working on getting Chris's conviction thrown out. And the latest attempt stems from an issue that was raised during Chris's trial. So the primary motion is a motion for a new trial. It's based on the fact that there is a statement made by a, a major witness of the trial, uh, Jeremy Frazier. There was a telephone number, a 978 number. He said that was his pager number or his beeper number. Jeremy Frazier was the man Chris said in his statement to police that he was with on the night Krista was believed to have been killed. According to the report from his interview with police, Chris says it was Jeremy who got in an argument with Krista. The two of them beat her up, and then it was Jeremy that stabbed her. Jeremy denied any involvement in her death and says he was never even at Krista's house. And his friend Sean Mulvey backed up his alibi that he was at Sean's father's house. During Chris's trial, Jeremy would testify on behalf of the prosecution, but his phone records would be a particular focus for Chris's defense. These are your cell phone records from back in 2002? Yes. See these highlighted phone calls to a beat a pager? Yes. 978-585. Yes. Who's that pager belong to? That's my pager. Okay. You're calling your own pager? Yes, because frequently I would lose it because the clip was broken. Okay. So you're calling your pager over and over again? Yes. On the weekend Krista was killed, between Friday, January 4th and Sunday, January 6th, 
Jeremy's phone records show that he called that 978 number 36 times, several of which occurred at or around the time the prosecutors believed Krista was killed. A 978 number which traces back to Concord, Massachusetts, northwest of Boston. You see the pager there that says 978? Are you positive that's your that's pager? That's my pager, yes. And you told the police that when they talked with you? That's my pager, yes. We suspect that that is not the case. And if that's not his pager number, that certainly raises a lot of questions as to who he was calling and why. Massachusetts State Trooper Christopher Mason testified at Chris's trial that they never looked into that pager number. Did you ever run these numbers to find out who was carrying that pager? I don't believe a subpoena was done for that page number. During the trial, the prosecution didn't subpoena Jeremy Frazier's phone records because they didn't consider him a possible suspect. And so his phone records, to them, weren't that relevant. ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. So now Chris's attorney, Gary Pelletier, has filed subpoenas to get records from the phone company with more information about that pager as well as Jeremy's cell phone. So we, we want to find out whose number it goes to. But the other part of this is I've asked for cell phone tower records to the extent that those are available. Gary says he's hoping to see if there's any location data that might be able to show where the cell phone and pager were on the weekend Krista was killed. But beyond the 30 or so calls to what Jeremy says was his pager, Chris's defense also questioned him at Chris's trial about one call in particular, an incoming call to his cell phone at 12.03 a.m. on Saturday, January 5th. That incoming call turned out to be from the state police barracks in South Yarmouth, the same place where Chris would be interrogated three years later. At trial, Bob George asked Trooper Mason, why would Jeremy be getting a call from the state police barracks right around the time that Chris says they were either on their way or at Chris's house? Trooper Mason's response, quote, I don't know. Why would somebody from the Massachusetts State Police be calling Jeremy Frazier on a Friday night when he's out partying? And if you believe the defense and Chris McCowan, probably on his way to Truro at that moment. Former Court TV correspondent Beth Karras. And when Jeremy was asked about that incoming call at 12.03 a.m. And this is the state police phone record, exhibit number 70. You see that, right? Yes. Now, it says that you received a phone call from someone at the state police barracks here in South Yarmouth. At 12.03, you see that, don't you? Yes. I'm asking you today, sir, do you have any memory whatsoever of talking to a state police trooper no, on the evening that you're supposedly killing Krista Worthington? No, I did not talk to state police officers. The defense believed that Jeremy Frazier got some special treatment from the police and that they bought into his alibi a little too easily. In its closing argument, the prosecution basically told the jury that this claim of some connection between Jeremy Frazier and the state police is complete and total nonsense. But while Chris's defense has sought to prove that connection, during our reporting for this story, we found out what happened with Gary's subpoenas for the phone records associated with Jeremy's pager number. I called up Gary on Monday to find out more. Gary Pelletier. Hey, Gary, it's Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hey, good, how are you doing? Good. So um, I understand that, you know, in the time from when I met you uh, at Barnstable Court and we were waiting for those subpoenas to come back from uh, Verizon and T-Mobile on the phone records, I understand that we've uh, you've gotten an answer. We have an answer. Uh, In fact, I spoke with Verizon today and what happened was Verizon reported that uh, they don't keep the records that far back and they would have destroyed the records of that account. I. I spoke today Wait, with so, Verizon so those, again. So the records are deleted? Uh, 
That's what Verizon claims. I, I spoke with someone from Verizon's subpoena department uh, this morning, and uh, and she confirmed the same thing that they keep the records for about eight to ten years, and that they destroy it. The only way that it wouldn't be destroyed is if it was a continuous account. So the fact that the records aren't there is it would seem to me that that's a pretty big blow to um, the efforts that you're the, the, the most recent motion for trial motion for new trial you've been trying to do what kind of impact does this have uh, for you in your case I mean to some degree it's a stumbling block but it's not necessarily fatal I think if uh, Verizon doesn't have the records um, then what we'd be do, looking to do I, I mean it, there are other things that we're, we're developing But while Chris's motion for a new trial seems to have been dealt a blow, Jeremy Frazier has found himself back in Barnstable Superior Court, but this time facing charges in another case. Former Court TV correspondent Beth Karras. Jeremy Frazier has been charged with rape of a child with force, indecent assault and battery on a child under 14, and reckless endangerment of a child. Now, of course, that's going to be of interest to McCowan's defense team. But while it may be of interest to Chris's defense, ABC's chief legal analyst Dan Abrams says... This tells us that Jeremy Frazier may be a horrible person, but it doesn't tell us that he killed Krista Worthington. There still isn't any evidence which links Jeremy Frazier to this crime. Jeremy has pleaded not guilty to his new charges and was released on bail back in August. The cash bail will be $10,000 cash. We tried to talk to Jeremy more than once throughout our reporting of this story, but he wouldn't talk to our team. Can you at least confirm if you knew Christopher McCowan? I don't know anybody. Mr. Mr. Frazier, ABC News, do you guys have any response to... What happened today? I also asked his parents and later his lawyer if they'd be willing to speak, but neither of them would talk to us. Jeremy's next court date is on December 20th. Chris told us that he remains optimistic about his chances of one day seeing his conviction overturned. The district attorney's office wouldn't speak with us for this story, but District Attorney Michael O'Keefe sent us a statement which says that the evidence against Chris and Chris alone for the rape and murder of Krista Worthington was, quote, overwhelming, and that the Commonwealth's Supreme Judicial Court exhaustively reviewed the case and upheld his conviction, finding in part that Chris's statement to police was voluntary, he was sober, and not suffering from a mental disorder. We also reached out to the Worthington family, and they declined to talk to us as well. But in the years since Krista's death, we've learned that her daughter Ava is now an adult and attending college. Here's her father, Tony Jacket, and his wife, Susan. She's very popular, and, and she seems to be well-adjusted, and we're, we're very happy for that. She's fun. She's very affectionate, very smart, and she's just very well-rounded, wonderful girl. Amira did a wonderful job raising her. Still, since Krista's murder, there remain lingering questions about the case. And there remain those who have their concerns about the investigation, Chris's trial, and the outcome. If Chris McCowan had not been a black man, but his skin had been white, he would not have been convicted of these crimes. 
jurors would have said there is reasonable doubt. They never found the knife that was the murder weapon. They never found a missing phone. There is no forensic evidence tying Christopher McCowan to the scene except the degraded semen in Krista Worthington's body. No fingerprints, no blood. No, and I think that it's very possible that, um, you know, they may have locked the wrong man up. Everybody just made the assumption, this is it, let's go through it, let's get it done, get it off the desk and on to the next case. We'll continue to report on this story and bring you new developments. So if you or someone you know has information to share, please reach out. Send me an email, mark.remillard at abc.com. A Killing on the Cape is a production of ABC Radio, 2020, and ABC News Digital. David Sloan is 2020's senior executive producer, and Terry Lickstein is our executive producer for this series. Karen Schiffman is our senior editorial producer. Reporting in production by myself, Mark Remillard, Karen Schiffman, Matt Wolf, Kerry Cook, Gail Deutsch, Mark Dorian, Jeff Snyder, and Jonathan Balthaser. Peter Manzo served as a consultant to ABC News for this story. His book is Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, Cape Cod, and the Trial of Chris McCowan. Our website is produced by Lauren Efron. That's at abcnews.com slash Cape. There you can see documents and more about the case. You can also see maps with key locations from our episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it, leave a review, and tell your friends. You can also find our other podcasts on the ABC News app or at abcnewspodcast.com. And if you like crime podcasts, check out A Murder on Orchard Street. Our friends at Nightline are investigating an unsolved murder, and they could use your help. I'm ABC's Mark Remillard. Thanks for listening.